Our God, we do gather to celebrate You as risen from the grave. And what gives the substance to the affection in our hearts when we sing is the reality of Your glory revealed in Your Word. And so now as we hear You speak to us in Your Word, our worship is more than anything fueled by the truth of Your glory and of the resurrection and all that that implies about Your person and about our salvation and about our hope. And so I do ask You and we together ask You that You would open our eyes, remove any thing that would hinder our full sight of your glory. Would you, by your Spirit, help us to taste of that glory, to adore you, to believe you, and to follow you with all of our lives and all of our hearts. We ask you now to be with us in these next moments in a special way. And we pray in your name, O Christ. Amen. Well, open up your Bibles this morning to John chapter 11. John chapter 11. Of course, because, of its, uh, because it's Easter, because it's Resurrection Sunday, we are taking a break from our normal walk through Matthew to focus particularly on the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And we'll do that this morning in John chapter 11, particularly in verses 25 through 26. Now, it was already mentioned in both the songs that we've sung, in the scripture that we've read, and in the prayer that Pastor Parker Pray that the gospel is grounded in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. In other words, the resurrection of Jesus Christ is central to the Christian faith. It is central to our salvation. And this is so for many reasons. Not the least of which being that if Christ didn't raise from the dead, then frankly we have no reason to hope in Scripture. We have no reason to hope in Christ. We indeed have no reason to believe anything that was said. Paul said this in 1 Corinthians 15. Listen as I read just a few scriptures. If Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain. Your faith also is in vain. If Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. You are still in your sins. And we are of all men most to be pitied. Pretty strong words. But they are true. Indeed, the resurrection is the very foundation of our hope. And without it, we have no hope. The resurrection declares Christ to be the Son of God. Romans 1.4, He was declared the Son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead. The resurrection of Christ from the dead offers irrefutable proof of His message, of His person, of the gospel, and also of the coming judgment that we've been learning about particularly in the Gospel of Matthew. Acts 17 says this, Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to men that all everywhere should repent, because He has fixed a day in which He will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom He has appointed, listen, having furnished proof to all men by raising Him from the dead. It's proof to all men. It guarantees for the believer every promise of God for our present and for our future salvation. Listen to Peter in 1 Peter 1. He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance imperishable, undefiled, and will not fade away. It confirms His sacrifice and it confirms the reality of Scripture. 
Listen to Paul's words again to the Corinthians. Christ died for our sins according to the scripture. He was buried and he was raised on the third day according to scripture. So the resurrection is central to the Christian faith. It's central to the person of Christ. It's central to the Christian's hope. And there are, of course, many, many other things that could be said about the resurrection that make it central to our life and to our hope. But this morning we're going to focus on a particular statement in John's Gospel that I think really in some ways is one of the most profound statements on the resurrection in all of Scripture because it, in a sense, encapsulates everything else that is said about the resurrection by focusing our attention particularly on Him who is our resurrection in life, the Lord Jesus Christ Himself. And so He will be our theme this morning particularly as we consider the nature of Christ and the resurrection. Now, as I've mentioned already, we'll be looking at John chapter 11. Hopefully, you're there. And we'll be focusing on uh, verses 25 through 26. But let me first give you just a brief overview, and then we'll look more specifically at the context. So first, we're going to be noting the context of the promise that Jesus gives in John eleven twenty-five, And the context is the raising of Lazarus from the dead. Now, in John 11, we're at a period in Jesus' life that is just before his triumphal entry into Jerusalem. So it's before his final week, his Passion Week. And he is soon, or he knows that he is heading to the cross. And so that's the direction that he's going. And his ministry has been overwhelming. It's been an overwhelming presence of God and the power of God in him throughout the land of Israel. He has cast out demons. He has calmed the sea. He has fed thousands. He's taught people in truth. And he has already raised the dead on more than one occasion. In every way, he has demonstrated himself to be the promised Messiah that the prophets anticipated. And in a unique way in John's gospel particularly, he's shown to be God the Son, the eternal Son of God. And in a unique way designed by God, in his revelation as the Son of God, he also reveals uniquely the Father and the Spirit. All of this wrapped into the person of Christ. Now after all he has done and taught, he essentially wraps it up in this culminating miracle of his ministry, the raising of Lazarus from the dead. And in some ways, as I mentioned, it's the most important and comprehensive miracle. It's not the only time that he raised someone from the dead, but because of the situation going near to the cross and his own death, which will be uh, climaxed by his resurrection from the dead and by the teaching that we look at this morning, it takes on a particular significance in his life and in his ministry. And like all of the signs, particularly in John, as they're called, the point of the the miracle is not the miracle itself. In other words, it's not the act. It's not the deed that he does. It is what that deed, what that act, what that sign reveals about the person of Christ himself. And so the focus this morning, of course, will not be on the miracle of raising Lazarus, but on Jesus' own self-revelation. So let's look more specifically... And rather quickly here, go through the specific context. Look back at the beginning of John chapter 11. Now in verses 1 through 2, John informs us that Lazarus, who is identified as the brother of Mary and Martha, Martha, that he is sick. 
And this is the same Mary that we met two weeks ago from Pastor Bigelow in Mark 14. The one who, he says here, anointed uh, the feet, the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet. And it's his brother, her brother is Lazarus and here he is sick. Now, the sickness of Lazarus is obviously quite severe, and they feared for his life, and so they ask, they send to Jesus in verse 3, and they invite him to come, Lord, behold, he, he whom you love is sick. However, upon hearing the news of Lazarus's sickness, even the one whom he loved, Jesus reveals to his disciples in verse 4 that there's more to this sickness than at first meets the eye. He says this sickness is not to end in death, but it is for the glory of God so that the Son of God may be glorified by it. In other words... It is a sickness that has come by the sovereign hand of God. It has a sovereign purpose designed by God. And it will bring a particular glory to the Son of God. So at first then what seems to be a rather shocking response. So instead of rushing to heal Lazarus as the sisters would have hoped. He specifically delays his response and wait until Lazarus dies. Look at verse 6. When he heard that he was sick, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Now notice then that Lazarus' death again is a part of God's particular plan for this instance. And we would not want to rush past that without noticing that God is not only sovereign over sickness, but He often has more designed in sickness and in death than what we may understand or what first meets the eye. Sometimes God is more glorified not in healing, but rather in the sickness itself, and sometimes, yes, even death. And that is the case here with Lazarus. It is not in Lazarus' sickness that God will get the glory and healing, though he's done that at other times. It is in Lazarus' death. And so Jesus then assures that Lazarus has time to die. Now at this point, this is something known only to Jesus. So after he waits a couple of days, he tells his disciples in verse 7 that they are going to go back to Judea, which elicits from them a certain response of fear because they were just seeking his life there. So Jesus rebukes them and then informs them more specifically in verse 13 that they were going, or excuse me, verse 14, that they're going to Judea to see Lazarus because Lazarus is dead. And that is the very point. Lazarus is dead and now the scene is set for the glory of Christ to be uniquely revealed. But look again at what Jesus says here. And at first glance, it would have been shocking to those who heard it. He tells them in verse 15, I am glad for your sakes that I was not there so that you may believe. In other words, he's saying, I'm glad Lazarus is dead. I'm glad that I wasn't there to help heal him because then you would miss an event that is designed to strengthen your faith in me. Again, it sounds harsh, but Jesus clarifies that the greater purpose is that you may believe. That you may believe. 
So as they continue to head towards the place where Mary and Martha are. In verse 20, Martha hears that he's coming and she goes out to meet him. And she immediately spills out what's really on her mind. She says in verse 21, If you would have been here, my brother would not have died. Mary's going to say the same thing in verse 32. If you had been here, my brother would not have died. And so that was really what, what their hope was. That's what they wanted him to come to save their brother. Save their brother. And so this sounds like it could be done. It, it, this could sound like it's in an accusing tone. But I think the emotion here is rather a mixed expression of her confidence in Jesus' power to heal, which she had witnessed, and a certain disappointment in the loss of her brother. It's really an expression of grief. An expression of grief on the part of Martha. And yet Jesus tenderly and lovingly addresses her ignorance of his true glory. Although she seems to hint at the idea that he may yet be able to do something, even raise him from the dead. She says in verse 22, I know, even now, I know whatever you ask of God, God will give it to you. She at the very least isn't really clear on his power and what his intentions are. So Jesus informs her in verse 23, your brother will rise again. And immediately then she goes to the final resurrection. She says, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. This was no tremendously great expression of faith. The resurrection was by and large, of course not by the Sadducees and some other groups, but by and large within mainstream Jewish religion, they understood a final resurrection of the dead, that there would be a final resurrection of the righteous and the unrighteous. And so here she is affirming that. She's saying, yes, I know at the end he will be raised. And that is as much as she's able at this point to trust him for she did not fully grasp even that and all that would be revealed later. But she is expressing here at least a genuine faith and understanding that God, that Lazarus' death was not in this sense an eternal death, but that there would be a resurrection. But for now, Jesus is something else he's going to do to make this clear. So after meeting Mary in verse 32 amid the mourning of the Jews and the criers who had come to express their condolences and their sadnesses uh, with them, he comes to the tomb where Lazarus has been raised. And then with all of the crowds watching and no doubt slightly confused about what he's going to do, if you'll notice in verse 39, he told them to remove the stone. To which Martha replies, Lord, by this time there will be a stench, for he has been dead for four days. You can imagine the confusion. What is, what is he up to? What is this Jesus up to? Remove the stone of one who has actually even started the process of decay? Nonetheless, they do as he says. And he prays to the Father in verse 41 through 42. And he calls Lazarus out of the tomb. He says in verse 43, Lazarus... Come forth, come forth, come forth from the grave and come forth in life. And by doing this then, Jesus has, is foreshadowing his own resurrection. He's foreshadowing what he will do on that last day, that final resurrection, when he will call his people out of the grave. Listen to what he says, don't turn there. 
In John chapter 5, verse 28, he says, Do not marvel at this. He says, An hour is coming in which all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and will come forth. Those who did the good deeds to a resurrection of life and those who committed the evil deeds to a resurrection of judgment. It is simply saying there that it is by Jesus' power that he will, in fact, be the source of raising all, both the unrighteous and the righteous, those who demonstrated the reality of a work of God in their heart by doing good, and those who demonstrated unbelief by the evidence of their life in doing evil. And here he's foreshadowing that. But understand, this is only a foreshadowing. This is not the final resurrection of Lazarus. This is not the final resurrection of Lazarus. What happens to Lazarus after this? He dies again. He dies again. We read it earlier in 1 Corinthians 15. This is not the final resurrection in which this perishable will put on imperishable and this mortal immortality. This is a practice session, if you will. It is something that is declaring the reality of Christ's power as the resurrection of life. But it is not yet the final resurrection. When we are raised from the dead in the end, we who know Him will not come out wrapped in bandages or any of the other elements or signs of the death and the weakness of this world, but we come out with full, glorious body, resurrection bodies designed to be in the presence of the Lord forever with no more death, no more pain, no more weakness, no more sickness. But for now, Lazarus, like the rest of us, will have to wait for that body. So after Jesus calls him out of the tomb, what is he? He's still wrapped in burial cloths and he still has the spices uh, that are mixed in with that. And you can only imagine if you try to think through this, the experience of Lazarus himself, what that must have been like. Alive again after being dead and now wrapped in these claws and all the smells of the spices and all of those things. And no doubt the people watching were simply stunned to see Lazarus walk out of the tomb. Which is why Jesus had to tell them at the end of verse 44, unbind him and let him go. You would think that would be obvious, but this is almost amusing. It shows us they were in utter shock. They're just staring at him in disbelief. And in all likelihood, they were just had their mouths opened. And so Jesus has to instruct them to unbind him. Let him go. Get those cloths off of him so that he can be free to move. And what was the ultimate response? Well, he says in verse 45, Many of the Jews who came to Mary and saw what he had done believed in him. Believed in him. And that was the point. He said that these things, I'm going to do something so that you might believe. That you might believe. We might believe that he is the son of God. That we might believe that he is the one promised by Messiah. And so it engendered in them faith. It elicited from them faith. In others, in verse 46, it elicited fear. And it, it displayed their darkened hearts of unbelief. He says, for others, some of them went to the Pharisees and told them the things which Jesus had done. And later that reality of Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead will be the very thing that frightens the Jewish leadership into this overwhelming and burgeoning popularity and influence of Jesus on the people such that they will want to put him to death to get him off of the scene says in verse 53, so from that day on, they planned together to kill him. 
So whether they believed in what the sign revealed about Christ and trusted him, or whether they saw in the sign only a threat to themselves, in either case, the glory of God was revealed and the glory of Christ was revealed. And it is that particular glory of Christ that we're going to focus on here for the remainder of the message. So turn back, if you will, or look back to verses 25 through 26. We skipped over it a bit earlier, but now we're going to look at it a little more closely. And in verse 25 and 26, again, as I've mentioned, this is really the point of the passage. This is the point of the whole passage. This is why Lazarus was raised. This is why all of these events have taken place to reveal this very truth about Christ. And so this secondly then is the content of his promise. Namely that Jesus is the foundation of our resurrection and life. Verse 25, after Mary had affirmed her faith in the final resurrection, Jesus says to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? Do you believe this? Now remember that Jesus is making a statement in response to Martha's assertion that Lazarus will be raised on the last day. Again, this was something that they understood. Daniel revealed that in Daniel chapter 12. We've looked at that briefly before. Let me just read it to you. Daniel chapter 12 says this. Verse 2, many of those who sleep in the dust of the ground will awake. These to everlasting life, but the others to disgrace and everlasting contempt. Just as in John chapter 5, there is then two resurrections. That wasn't fully understood by them. We understand by what would be revealed in Revelation 20 that these two resurrections will actually be separated by a period of a thousand years. There is a first resurrection and there is a second resurrection. But the important point here is not the fact that Jesus affirms there will be a resurrection at the end of the age. That's Not the point. That's not what he's emphasizing. The point here is that he is identifying himself as that resurrection. He's identifying himself as that resurrection. Absolutely incredible statement. And isn't a statement that is designed to give comfort as well as to instruct. Instruct us about the glory of Christ. And in understanding that glory of Christ, bring comfort to our hearts. So let's notice then first, the nature of Christ is God the Son. He says, I am the resurrection and the life. I am the resurrection and the life. This is an absolutely incredible statement and one of many statements in John designed to reveal the divine nature of Christ. That He is deity. That He is God. He uses a particular form here of this I am used several times in John's gospel. And it is an intentional verbal link to the revelation of God to Israel in Exodus 3.14. If you'll remember, Moses was at the burning bush. And he said, Moses did to God who was revealed in the burning bush. What name do I tell the people of Israel? You're sending me to them with this message. What name? What do I tell them who sent me? And he says, tell them, I am has sent you. I am that I am. And Jesus is particularly picking up on that language. And John is revealing that language in his gospel. 
He is particularly identifying himself to be one and equal with Yahweh of the Old Testament, the God of Israel. The God of Israel. This is not simply conjecture. Jesus has said this explicitly, particularly in chapter 8 of John. If you'll remember, he said to them in verse 56 or verse 57 of chapter 8, the Jews said to him, you are not yet 50 years old and you have seen Abraham? Because he had just said that. Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was born, I am. I am. And if you think that that wasn't a very clear statement of what he was saying, putting himself on the same level of the God of the Old Testament, what did they do? If you're looking at it in verse 59, therefore they picked up stones to throw at him. It wasn't the first time because they got exactly what he was saying. And of course, Jesus escaped them. In chapter 18 of John, when they come to arrest him, the very mention of this name, I am, is going to cause his accusers to fall backwards to the ground in stunned amazement. So the emphasis of this statement and these statements is to identify himself as the God of Israel. And he does this in such a way as to show not only that he is equal to him, but he does this in a fullness, in a way that shows us particular fullness of this equality. In other words, it is to say that as the God of Israel, particularly the Son of God, that he is the source of their total spiritual life, their total sustenance. He is the very embodiment of the truth of God to the nation of Israel. Just listen to some of the ways that he says this, and I'll just read them to you. In John 6.35, he says, I am the bread of life. He is indeed the living bread that has come down out of heaven to give life to the world. He says in 8.12, I am the light of the world. In 10.7, I am the door of the sheep. In 14.6, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. In 15.1, I am the true vine. And in here, I am the resurrection and the life. He is the totality of God's revelation. His redemption, His truth, and the spiritual sustenance of His people is all located in and through Christ, the Son of God. And so here he says, I am, and I am the resurrection and the life. And these are two distinct and inextricable realities. Let's just look at them for just a moment. The resurrection. This term refers here to being, it's being brought back to life. Being brought back to physical life after being dead. He is not speaking here of a spiritual resurrection. There is a sense in which there is a spiritual resurrection. We are dead in sin by nature and then by grace we are made alive together with Christ. But that's not what he's speaking of here. He's speaking of a physical resurrection. It's a resurrection in the sense of someone who was pronounced dead, or not simply someone who was pronounced dead and comes back to life, as with Lazarus. It's not even, though, however, a resurrection that is uh, somebody who had a near-death experience or anything like that, of course. He is particularly here looking forward to that final resurrection. The final resurrection of which the raising of Lazarus was only a foreshadowing. He's looking forward to that time that he had told them earlier. That I myself, all that the Father has given to him. He himself, in chapter 6 verse 40, will raise him up 
on the last day. He's saying, I am that resurrection. I am that resurrection. And again, when this is put with the statement of identification with the God of Israel, the one who is the creator of all, the very creator of Adam, he is the one who John already identified at the beginning of his gospel with the opening words of Scripture, in the beginning God created, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He is the resurrection in that He is the one who, by His own power, created and spoke all things into being. And He is the one who is saying, who by His own power will be the source that raises all from the dead. Both the righteous and the unrighteous, we've already looked at that. But here He has particularly in view His raising from the dead those who are His, those who are the righteous. This points to his divine power, his divine power, his own power in his own person. He is the one who will raise them from the dead. Listen to John 5, 21. For just as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, even so the Son also gives life to whom he wishes. This is what is sometimes called the inseparable operations of God. In other words, there is a particular order, there is a particular activity assigned to one, and yet it involves all, each member, the Father and the Son and the Spirit. And here it is, the Father who raises the dead, and yet He also gives to the Son to raise the dead. They are both in their own way involved in the raising of the dead. None but one who is equal to God, who is in fact God, can do this. He will raise from the dead by the command of the Father all whom the Father has given to Him. Listen to the way that Paul says it in Philippians. Just listen. In 3.21 he says this, beginning in verse 20. Our citizenship is in heaven from which also we eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, Who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of His glory by the exertion of the power that He has even to subject all things to Himself? This is the power of Christ. This is the glory of Christ. He is the resurrection. He is the God of Israel who alone brought life into being and will bring it into being in the resurrection. However, as noted earlier, the significant point here is not simply the resurrection of the dead, but that he's identifying himself as that. He's pointing us to beyond the event to himself. And by doing that, he's bringing comfort by, and particularly to Martha by saying, look, it's not simply a far off event over here that you're to hope in. It's not simply something way off in the future. But he's saying, look, the very one who is that resurrection is standing here with you. He's the one who is near you. The one who is the very reality and the power of all of God's raising the dead is speaking with you. Do you get that, Martha? Do you understand that? It's not unlike Jesus' own words to the Samaritan woman at the well. When she was talking about the Messiah, the one they were hoping, and he says, I who am one who is speaking to you am he. Can you imagine the 
stunning impact that that would have to hear the one sitting next to her to say that. I am he. Me. Not one who is coming, but the one who is with you. The one who indeed has come. He says to her, I am that resurrection, Martha. And beloved, we should take great comfort from that too. Because the one who is standing there speaking with Martha is the one who is in us and is present with us, who said, I will never leave you and I will never forsake you. He is in us by the Spirit. And we will one day be in His physical presence. He's saying, I am He who will accomplish. I am the grounds and I am the substance of the resurrection and I am with you. He says, not only that, He says, I am the life. I am the resurrection and the life. And really, I think in many ways, this is the true glory of the passage. This is the true glory of the passage. I am the life. This is such a rich concept and it's at the very heart of our salvation. What kind of life is he talking about? He's not talking about mere life as existence, like plants and animals live, that kind of thing. Although it is true that everything depends on its life because of Christ. Colossians 1.17, in him all things hold together. Hebrews 1.3, he upholds all things by the word of his power. And so while it's true all things depend on their life uh, from him, that's not what he's talking about. And he's not even talking about life simply as our interaction with this world, sort of the sum total of our relationships and experiences in this world. Jesus is referring to something more than that. He says, I am the life. He's referring here to eternal life. Eternal life. It's the promise of the gospel. It's the promise that he made to his people. Eternal life. What is eternal life? Well, at its most basic level, it refers to the life that God has in himself. The life that God has in himself. He says in verse 26 of John 5, again, just listen, you might jot it down. For just as the Father has life in Himself, even so He gave to the Son also to have life in Himself. It's the in Himself life of God. In other words, it is to say that God depends on no one for life, nothing outside of Himself. It's a life He has with no beginning and no end. It's just a life that is God. Because He's God. The fancy word for that is aseity. The point of it is simply that God exists. I am. Who are you? I am. He has no beginning. He has no end. And he depends on nothing outside of himself. But that's not really the heart of eternal life. That is a part of it. It is essential. It is the fact that God exists. But the life that Jesus is talking about here is what he said in John chapter 1-4. Listen. It is the life is in him, he says, and the life is the light of the world. The life that was in Christ and the light of the world was not simply the existence of God. It wasn't simply that He is. It was something more than that. I think at the heart of eternal life is this. At the heart of eternal life is this. And what was the light of the world? It's the life that was revealed in Christ of God in which He lives in relationship as the Son of God with the Father and with the Spirit. That's the life It's the life of God as Father and Son and Spirit revealed particularly. Listen to what he says in verse 14. Just listen. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw His glory, the glory of the only begotten, from the Father, full of grace and truth. 
In verse 18, no one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, He has explained Him. He told the disciples in John 14, if you've seen me, you have seen the Father. In 1 John 1, 2, he mentions that this is the life that was with the Father and was manifest to us. The life was manifested and we have seen and testify and proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was manifested to us. Now here's the amazing thing though. This life is the life that God has in Himself. It is a life that He enjoys in His relationship with Himself the community of the Godhead, the Father and the Son and the Spirit, but it is a life that in Christ is particularly revealed in His accomplishment of our salvation. Isn't that the amazing thing? He revealed this life uniquely in His redemption of sinners. God so loved the world, He gave His only begotten Son that all who believe in Him should not perish, but have eternal life. The life that Jesus manifested and gives to sinners is this, catch it, is to participate in His own relationship with the Father and with the Spirit. That's what He said in John 17.3. This is eternal life that they may know you. That's not know about you. That is know you in the reality of the experience of faith and of relationship. The only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. It is, as he goes on to explain that life that John says, it is fellowship with the Father and with His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, in 1 John 1.3. That is the life. That is the life that He's revealing. So He is the resurrection and the life for us and for our salvation. Let me just briefly bring these two things together in this way. This statement then points to the glory of salvation in and through Christ. It points to the cross, actually. It points to our redemption. It points to the eternal life and fellowship that He came to give us in and through Himself. The Son of God in flesh, crucified and risen for us. Listen, He is the resurrection because He's going to die. That's why. In order to be the resurrection, it involves His death. John said at the very, the Baptist, at the very beginning of the uh, gospel is recorded, he is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He's going to die and suffer because he is the sacrifice for sin, and yet he will rise from the dead because he is the life. He is the life. And he did it for our salvation and to reconcile us to God. And so that then takes us to the second point. The nature of Christ then in our salvation. The nature of Christ and our salvation. This is why He is our hope. So listen to what He says. I am the resurrection and the life. I am your God, essentially, who has come to be your resurrection and your life. And then He says this. He who believes in Me will live even if he dies. And whoever lives and believes in Me will never die. That is an incredible statement. Incredible statement particularly in what it reveals about the nature of our present salvation in Christ and our hope as Christians. Now, essentially in this statement, he's looking at the same truth from two different angles. What he says, He who is believing in me or believes in me will live, even if he dies, is to say simply this, that when a believer dies physically, they are immediately in the presence of the Lord. 
They're immediately in the presence of the Lord. And the future tense here, he shall live, it might be pointing though particularly to that future resurrection of living in his presence in a resurrected body. In that case he'd be saying, death is not the end for the one who believes in me, but he shall also live with me. And it is this reality that makes death for a Christian actually something blessed. Listen to this in Revelation 14, 13. This is the idea that Parker was talking about earlier. When Christians come together to remember one who has died in the Lord. It says this, And I heard a voice from heaven, John does, saying, Right, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Yes, says the Spirit, so that they may rest from their labors, for their deeds follow with them. Blessed are those who die in the Lord. We would count them blessed. The second part of his statement, everyone who is living and believing in me will never die. Literally, you could say will not die to to eternity, will not die forever. It is to say this, that the one who has the life of Christ will never truly experience death in its ultimate sense. We may die physically. In fact, we will die physically, which is why that's not what he's talking about. Christ himself is going to die physically. It is to say this, That though we may die physically, if we are united to Christ, we will never be separated from God in intimate fellowship with Him. Never. Never. That is the promise. We will never be out of fellowship with Christ. He said it this way, Jesus did earlier, again in John chapter 5. He who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life, get this, and does not come into judgment, but is passed out of death into life. Let's think about this a little bit. As noted earlier, to have spiritual life and eternal life is to be in fellowship with the Father. That's what it means to have life. It is to be participating in the life of Christ. It is to have His righteousness covered over your sin. It is to have His fellowship with the Father become something that we are allowed to participate in who have trusted in Him. And so what He's saying then is that kind of fellowship, that life, that intimate relationship with God will never cease even when you physically die. It will never cease. That's why Paul could say in 2 Corinthians, listen... We are of good courage, I say, and prefer rather to be absent from the body and to be at home with the Lord. That's the idea. We're absent from the body, we're at home with the Lord. We are put to death in the flesh, we're in the presence of God. The relationship, the fellowship with Him by the Spirit is never never broken. Listen to what he says to the Philippians, and just just listen. Philippians 1.23 He says, I'm hard-pressed from both directions, having the desire to depart and be with Christ, for that is very much better. To remain on in the flesh is more necessary for your sake. He's like, look, I have this fellowship with God for me to to live as Christ and to die as gain. And so whether I'm here, I'll fellowship with Him and I'll serve Him. If I die, I'm in His presence and that's even better. But I will never be outside of my fellowship with God in and through Christ. But let's consider the second, another part of this. The death he speaks of, then, is a death that will never be experienced by a believer. And it's the death, then, of that separation, that final separation of God. Now, consider this because it has to be understood. 
In 2 Thessalonians 1.9, Paul says this, speaking about eternal destruction that's coming. He says this, listen. He says, eternal destruction, these will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His power. In Ephesians 2, he talks about unbelievers being separated from the life of God. Now, when Paul says this in 2 Thessalonians 1, he doesn't mean there's an absolute separation from God's presence because even in hell, even in eternal punishment, God is present. He's present, however, not with any sense of His goodness, not with any sense of His willingness to bless, but He is present in judgment. He's present in wrath. Listen to John 14, or excuse me, Revelation 14. He says this, Speaking of those who will experience this wrath, he says this wrath is mixed in the full strength of the cup of his anger and he will be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb and the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever. They have no rest day and night and those who worship the beast and his image and whoever receives the mark of his name. That's what death Eternal death, death from sin, brings. It is a removal from the presence of God in the sense of any sense of God's goodness being expressed to those who are in eternal judgment. Separation from His presence and his kind of, that would manifest kindness or goodness. But then understand that. This is what we deserve, right? If you're a sinner, and you are, that is what you by nature deserve. That kind of separation... And you have to grasp that or what Christ is promising here will not be seen in its full glory. That's what we deserve. But in Christ, he's saying, in him, for the believer, this is never the case. Never the case. There is a fellowship that is enjoyed with God now for the believer. And it will never break. Even physical death will not stop that. Nothing will separate the believer from Christ. And we're going to mention this a little bit more, but listen to this note by William Barclay. He says this. He's quoting the words of Edward Confessor, who was an old English king. And the king said this. Weep not, on his deathbed, weep not, I shall not die. And as I leave the land of the dying, the land of the dying, I trust to see the blessings of the Lord in the land of the living. We call this world the land of the living, but it would in fact be more correct to call it the land of dying. Through Jesus Christ, we know that we are journeying not to the sunset, but to the sunrise. That really captures part of what he's saying here. This is the land of the dying because we're dying. It is the land of the living that believers are headed towards. And the life that we share have now will be more fully experienced what we've passed through the gates of physical death. But it points to another reality that is striking. And it points to him again, who is the resurrection and the life. So if the reality of death is ultimately separation from God, if that's, if that's what death should bring to those outside of Christ, the experience of his wrath, that then could only be moved, removed then by him who is the resurrection and the life. Right? Our sin and the death and separation from God's fellowship that it brings could only be destroyed by Him who has eternal life in Himself and has had it eternally with the Father. It could only be destroyed by the one who could make that statement, I am the resurrection and the life. That I am the one who has life in Himself. 
Only someone with life in himself could be the source then of our life. He says in Acts 2.24, Paul did, or Peter, it was impossible for him to be held in its power, speaking of death. So it's only him who was life who could take on a human body made in his own image, bear in it and in his own soul the full measure of God's wrath for sin, the full weight of the curse of the law, which he is on his way to do in John 11, and in some mysterious way fulfill the requirement of the law in his pain and suffering and some mysterious separation from his fellowship with the Father in a way that would cause him to cry out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And yet in that very experience of the separation in a mysterious way, in the very experience of his death, not to be destroyed by death, but rather, and listen, destroy death and break its power by his own life. That's the glory of this. The resurrection and the life. Him who could experience death and not be destroyed by death, even though in that death he bore the full weight and penalty of the law, but rather to defeat death itself and then rise victoriously. Only he who is the resurrection and the life could do that. And therefore it's only in him that we can have that hope. Listen to what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.4. It is in Christ and in his resurrection he says that this Mortal, this that is subject to death, this that is weak and is perishable, is swallowed up by life. Is swallowed up by life. What a tremendous statement. Tremendous statement. What a picture. It's utterly destroyed by the life of Christ. Listen to one other thing. And just listen. In 1 John 5, I just want to emphasize this and we'll... Wrap it up with a couple more points. Listen to John chapter 5. The one who believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself. And the one who does not believe God has made him a liar. Because he has not believed in the testimony that God has given concerning his Son. Do you realize there's two options there? I either believe and repent and I trust, or I'm calling God a liar. I'm saying what your, your testimony is not true. And this is the testimony, John says, that God has given us eternal life and this life is in His Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. I have written these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. When you see His life in you and it's only in His Son... Notice what he says. He is believing in him. He repeats it twice. The one who believes in me. Verse 26. And believes in me. In me who is the resurrection and the life. Him who could say to his disciples, because I live, you will live also. And he is our confidence. Now look at this. This promise then, he says it twice, is for those who are believing. For those who are believing. John 3.15, whoever is believing in Him will have eternal life. Whoever is believing in Him will have eternal life. What does it mean to believe or to be believing? I can tell you what it does not mean. It does not mean simply confirming that this is true. It does not mean simply confirming that this is true. It does not mean confirming it and being able to defend it with clarity from Scripture that it is true. That's not what he means by believing. 
Listen to what he says. Just listen to the words. In John chapter 2. When he was in Jerusalem at the Passover during the feast, many believed in his name. There's no slight of kind of Greek word kind of thing going on here. It's the word for belief throughout. He's saying many believed in his name, observing the signs which he was doing, but Jesus on his part was not entrusting himself to them, for he knew all men, and because he did not need any to testify concerning man, for he himself knew what was in man. In other words, they were believing, but it was not the kind of belief that Jesus would respond to in entrusting himself to them. In other words, it wasn't a right kind of belief. So there is a wrong kind of belief. There is a kind of belief that affirms the signs and affirms certain truths and yet does not bring about participation in the life and the salvation of the Son of God. It's a faith that does not love and does not rest in and does not obey. The believing Jesus is speaking about here is the believing of repentance. The believing of repentance It's the believing wherein you exchange your life for His. That's the believing He's talking about. You think you could say it stronger? Listen to Christ, His own words in verse 25. He who loves his life loses it. He who hates his life in this world will keep it to life eternal. What kind of believing is this? Is the kind of believing that doesn't just say... This is great, I'll add it on. It is the believing that says, I understand everything that God has revealed about Christ, what that says about my sin, what that says about His atonement, and what that says about me exchanging everything to embrace Him, to have His life. It's the believing that obeys Him from a love for Him. John 14, 15, If you love Me, you will keep My commandments. It's no believing that says, I can simply... Decide whether or not I want to obey His commandments. It's the believing that is bound at the very level of our soul and faith in Christ that is submitted to Him as Lord and obeys Him and desires to obey Him. That's the kind of believing. It is a total faith believing that abides in Him in John 15. It's a total life and commitment. You want graphic language? Listen to how Jesus describes it here. In John chapter 6, Truly I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink His blood, you have no life in yourself. And he who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. And he who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. And the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father. And so he who eats me, and he he also will live because of me. This is the bread which came down out of heaven, not as the fathers ate and died. He who eats this bread will live forever. He's not talking about a piece of bread and some wine here, beloved. That makes no sense in the context. He said, this is the bread which comes down out of heaven. Himself, the flesh that God had given to him. He is the flesh. He is the one who is the resurrection and the life, is the bread out of heaven. He's not talking here about the Eucharist. It's not what he's talking about. That would make, again, no sense in the context. What he's talking about is himself, his sacrifice. 
Verse 27, do not work for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you, for on him the Father has set his seal. Verse 33, for the bread of God is that which comes down out of heaven and gives life to the world. Verse 35, I am the bread of life, and he who comes to me will not hunger, and he who believes in me will never thirst. Verse 40, this is the will of my Father, that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in him will have eternal life, and I myself will raise him up on the last day. Verse 47, truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes in me has eternal life, and I am the bread of life. I am the bread of life. And it is in him that this life comes. Verse 51, I am the living bread that came down out of heaven. If anyone eats this bread, he will live forever. And the bread also which will I give for the life of the world is my flesh. It is my flesh. That's what we remember Verse 63, it is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. The words I have spoken to you are spirit and are life. Simon Peter said at the end, Lord, where shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. The believing that he's talking about is here that says that the sacrifice that God has given us for the life of this world to participate in his life is Christ. The Christ who is going to go to the cross. The Christ who is going to be laid in a tomb for three days. The Christ who is going to rise and demonstrate his victory over death. And it is participation in that life that's marked by believing in an obedient faith. The one who does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. And so the question then that Jesus lays before Martha after saying these things is, do you believe this? Do you believe this? One has said this, every divine communication challenges the heart to which it is made. God always challenges the heart to respond to his commandments. And so the question then is, do you believe this? Do you believe this? Do you believe it in the way that Jesus describes belief? Do you believe not only the promise about never dying, but everything that he said, what he said about himself? Is it true? And the question is, if you say yes, then the question is, have you hated your life in this world then to gain his? Do you abide on him and feed on him each day? Is that demonstrated by your obedience, by your desire to follow him? Do you believe this? Let me note lastly two points. This then is the confidence of the children of God. The certainty of trust and courage. So then the two things then, there's many you could say that he would want to emphasize or that I would this morning, is then that he is the resurrection and the life. This is the Christ who is the Son of God. We can place our complete and certain trust in him. He said at the end of John that all of these things have been written In verse 31, so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in His name. And secondly is this, by believing we can walk in an unshakable confidence in this world. It means the fear of death is removed. It's removed. It's gone in Christ. The certainty of being with Christ is secured in His resurrection. Citizenship in the kingdom of heaven is secured in His resurrection. And it means then that if we believe that, then we 
can live with greater confidence and encouragement in this world. Listen to one who says this. The crosses and comforts of this present time would not make such an impression upon us as they do if we did but believe the things of eternity as we ought. As we ought. Paul puts it this way, and I'll end with this and we'll pray. I will not be put to shame in anything, he says, but with all boldness Christ will even now as always be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. So I leave the challenge with you as I do with myself. Do you believe this? Do you believe this? Is that belief demonstrated in your life? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the gift of your son. The gift of your son. The gift of your son that involved his death on our behalf. His experience of your displeasure and anger against human sin. That he bore in a human body, though he was the sinless son of of God. He bore in some mysterious way the suffering that was great enough that all who trust in Him could be counted free and participate in His life, in your life. We thank You for the gift of the Son. Help us to meditate much, our Lord, on these words of Yours and to gain confidence from it, to live with the certain hope that we have in You. And I pray for those here whose eyes are yet darkened, who may have a form of religion, although they have denied its power, who may speak the words of love to You with their lips, but there is no affection in their heart, who think but lightly of sin, who think but lightly of the riches and the treasures that are in Christ and of the kingdom of heaven. I pray that you would open their eyes and that you would draw them to your dear and beloved Son by your Spirit and that they may even today have life and know what these words really mean because they've tasted of the kindness of God in Him. Send us from this place, our Lord, with Christ on our hearts and on our minds and that we might honor and serve Him in every area. And we pray in the matchless name of Him again who died and rose again for us in the name of Christ. Amen.